This is the Snug Podcast. In this episode, what will healthcare be like in the future? Video consultations definitely offer something in addition to telephone consultations. People talk about artificial intelligence replacing doctors. AI is simply automating cognitive processes instead of physical processes. So in the same way that the screwdriver didn't replace the builder, what we've done is we're building AI tools that automate certain services that previously would have required a person face-to-face. Hello, Snug Podcast listeners. I'm Andrew McElhinney, a GP in Forth Valley. And just in case you've missed out on our previous podcasts, check out our website, www.snughealth.org.uk, for more about how the Scottish National Users Group is trying to support the improvement in healthcare through better use of technology. This time, we're going to think ahead a little bit, into the future. The world is changing. The NHS is changing. New technology means that we now communicate in lots of different ways. Instead of seeing people face-to-face, or even speaking on the phone. There's a lot more online communication now through things like email, SMS, WhatsApp, and especially social media. Here's two questions for you. Do you need to see your doctor to deal with whatever your problem is? Would a phone call or maybe an online consultation be more convenient? And who decides how serious your problem is in the first place? You will have an opinion, but are you right? What about your computer? Do you trust Google? or Alexa, or any other form of artificial intelligence to give you advice in a medical problem? Alexa, I've got a really sore back. Can you tell me the problem? Hmm, I don't know that one. Alexa, I'm really tired. Can you help? Sorry, I don't know that. Alexa, I've got chest pain. According to the US Mayo Clinic, treating chest pain might involve medications. Alexa... Do you know where I can get a good doctor? Sorry, I don't know that. Hmm, there seems like a long way to go before we can give Alexa a job in the practice. But here's the thing. Would you trust an accountant without a calculator? Or a doctor without a computer? This episode has a really interesting conversation about some of these issues with Dr Keith Grimes, which he recorded back in May when he was at the Snug Members Day. Keith is the Clinical Innovation Director for Babylon Healthcare, who provide video consultations on the NHS in England. We discussed how, after training in Scotland, Keith became involved with Babylon, his involvement with the safety aspects of artificial intelligence and patient triage. Keith's a really interesting person to chat to, and he's a real enthusiast in how technology can make healthcare better. He loves using virtual reality technology. We get on to some interesting uses of virtual reality in dementia diagnosis and pain relief. So, settle in. It's a half-hour-long conversation, but it will be worth listening to as we consider what are some of the major ways that technology will change the way you get your healthcare in the future. So welcome, Dr Keith Grimes. Hello. Nice to, nice to meet you, and uh, I was going to say welcome to Scotland, but of course it's welcome back. Yes, I'm not often, up often enough, but yes, it is welcome back, So I'm originally from, from Aberdeen, although my... Uh, my time in England has ironed that out of me now, I'm afraid. <laughs> and you are the Clinical Innovation Director for Babylon Healthcare. Health, yes, that's right. So uh, my background is essentially I'm an NHS trained GP and worked in 
general practice in Scotland, then in England, principally in out of hours from about 2000 up to 2018, um, and was also involved in technology. We'll obviously talk a wee bit about that. And then decided to throw myself full into working with Babylon. So I, I joined up there. I worked four days, four days a week for them, and I still do one day a week as a general practitioner. Right. And you're a VR enthusiast? Absolutely. I love uh, virtual reality, augmented reality, the whole range of uh, immersive technologies, yeah. And I've seen you described several places as a geek. That's right, and I describe myself as a geek as well. That's a, and that's entirely right. I'm quite happy. I am a geek and a gamer and a GP, sometimes in that order. I think you'll be among friends here. So uh, Yes, I, well, I, I fully expect so. Yes, so you, you trained in Aberdeen. That's right. So the, the, the short version of the background is I'm from, uh, my father was in the oil industry. We moved around a lot, so I lived abroad. Uh, and uh, we lived in Aberdeen originally, moved around a lot, and then came back uh, when I was a teenager, uh, finished off my secondary schooling there, and then at that point um, had the opportunity to go to, as you can in Scotland, to go to university just that little bit earlier. So I went to Aberdeen University and did my medical degree there and an intercalated degree as well uh, along the way. Um, and yeah, I loved it. It was um, a wonderful place. Aberdeen's a fantastic place to study medicine because of the, everything's kind of concentrated together. It's a nice sort of place to go and get it done. Also with the opportunity to travel in Vanessa as well and break more. Yeah. And when did the interest in tech start? Well, my interest in technology started way before any interest in medicine. I mean, I was interested in tech. If I think all the way back, my earliest memories are watching Thunderbirds on TV. I've loved sci-fi and technology, like, as long as I can remember. And I've loved computers and programming computers and computer games and building things and taking things apart. And I've loved all that side of things way before I had even the slightest interest in any kind of medical side of things. Uh, in fact, my first wish was to go to university to study computer science. But um, my parents rapidly corrected me on that, saying that I was destined for either medicine or law. And I thought, well, I couldn't bring myself to be a lawyer. So I thought, well, medicine will do. But, uh, but it wasn't so... I mean, I was very interested in the medical sciences as well. But before all of that was technology. And so hmm. as a result of that, I was always trying to use technology all the way through medical school mm. and, and through my, my clinical practice it's probably something that people listening to this and people attending the conference or the event will probably you know resonate with them because you know technology is a love that they bring into the work they do absolutely yeah, yeah. and um you did gp training in aberdeen as well uh no i did uh, two years of just uh, traveling I, w- I worked in um, glasgow then up in inverness went out to australia for a year um, in uh, in Queensland and did the usual sort of working in the emergency department and doing everything and you know changing the light bulbs and being a vet and like you know that sort of practice <laughs> and then when I got back to the UK after that time like before I went to Australia I was all set on pursuing a career in either radiology or emergency medicine but one of the doctors one of the GPs that covered us on Wednesday afternoons in Inverness um, who always seemed very relaxed and wise said well when you get back from Australia you know just try general practice for you and see what you think. And of course, that was at a time when you could almost kind of roll your own general practice training, you know. So I, by the time I got back, I'd actually put together enough of the kind of fundamental parts to allow me to do my GP registrar year, yeah. which I did. And I was living in Edinburgh at the time and uh, walked, a, you know, spent a couple of days walking around central Edinburgh, meeting trainers and practices and seeing if it was a good fit and, and, and found myself at the West End Medical Practice with Tommy Hepburn uh, in February 2000 and spent a year as a registrar in, in what they call the, the new town, of course mm-hmm. it's ancient, but 
uh, and had a wonderful time. Yeah. And were you able to use IT much in practice that time? So uh, what's interesting is I set up the practice website for them. Mm-hmm. Um, I, used, I was an early adopter of using PDAs, so I quite often kept uh, medical reference information on my um, Palm Pilot I had a Palm Pilot, and then I had a trio after that. But the Palm Pilot, on, on that I had things like, so, you know, the medical algorithms, like MedCalc and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So I was a big, really into that, and I, I was an early adopter of programming in JavaScript, so I quite often write um, small scripts to sort of do peak flow assessments and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But I, So I was still more of a kind of hobbyist, tinkering and trying to get technology to fit with what, what I did. So, so you you worked as a as an Eki doctor. Do you want to do you want to describe what Eki was? It wasn't substance related. No, 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 no. Uh, it wasn't related to that. <laughs> it was uh, the electronic clinical communication implementation, a program looking at implementing a number of uh, what we would now call digital health in, uh, uh, applications or interventions. Uh, and if I remember rightly, because I was the Eki program on the clinical program doctors in Edinburgh and you were one of the program doctors in Fort Valley yes. so so it was um, clinical email first of all a lot of it was sort of based around email it was being able to ask for medical advice it was being able to re- make referrals using email and if I remember rightly it was kind of a word template almost or something like that there were templates that we you'd used. have worked with John Donald yes because yeah, he was very in- involved yeah in John Do- that's right yeah, John Donald I couldn't remember his name earlier on but John Donald yes uh, and then there was Making appointments, there was appointment booking. Yes. Uh, yeah, which, 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 which was the bit that was least yeah, liked. Least popular. But what was very popular was getting lab results. And of course, yeah. it was the implementation of getting lab results. And I believe there was uh, electronic discharge letters. There was five components, That's weren't right. there? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so of those, some of them we still haven't implemented. Right? Some have been tried and failed. Some are just normal practice. So I think lab, like lab results, for example. Yeah. I mean, I'm assuming it's the same in Scotland as in England with with you know electronic ordering and then the results coming straight back to the record. Absolutely, and and the applications that we started using then, like Sky Gateway and Sky Store, yes. are still being used yes, in I their original the, form. <laughs> well, that is that is impressive. I mean, uh, we were just discussing before the podcast started about how the ideas that were being used in the late 90s, early noughties are essentially much the same as the ideas that people are using now, but we have additional computing power, but also kind of ubiquitous network access and so on. So so SkyStore was an early cloud implementation, wasn't it? And uh, so that it survived is not too surprising, but I, I don't. I, I haven't been uh, using it to know what the functionality is like. It hasn't you know. really changed much, but it's not, useful. It's useful. And no. I suppose the thing is, I mean, things like electronic referrals, mm-hmm. things like test requesting, um, even going paperless. I yeah. mean, these have all happened mm. in, 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 in the period, but it's so slow. Yeah. I, I just wondered, you know, as an innovator and an enthusiast, yeah. do you get frustrated by how slowly it takes to change things? Well, yes, that's... Yeah, I, I, I spent <laughs> my entire NHS... Like, the bulk of my NHS career doing everything the way that I thought was right. You know, trying to find... The, the positions that would allow me to help accelerate innovation. And they either start out that they didn't exist. Mm. So you would, you know, you're interested in innovation. Um, and they say, well, that's great. Well, we, we have someone that needs to do clinical governance and there's also some computers involved. So you end up picking a lot of sort of uh, skills up elsewhere. Um, and then when you do get innovation roles, um, those innovation roles are slightly hobbled by the natural sort of conservatism of, or resistance to change, some of which is entirely appropriate, uh, some of which is maybe is up for challenge. Um, 
and, uh, and, and doing it in, in the public sector is extremely hard because um, not that people are motivated to change purely because of the idea of reward, but it's that there's so many disincentives to change. There's no, there's no, you just stand to lose a lot if mm. you fail. There's no, there's no tolerance for failure. And I'm not talking about failure in a sense that it may in some way harm a patient. It's more about the proposing and failing of an idea. Um, seems to be a, a dirty thought or a dirty word. Something that I've since learned, particularly in the digital health community coming from the United States and the sort of more, mm. more you know, aggressively um, innovative areas, that, that failure, as long as it's done safely, is actually a really important mm. mechanism by which you can improve. So it was. So I, um, I, I ended up as sort of IT leads and then informatics leads mm. and then innovation lead for a CCG and when I finally made it to an innovation lead at the CCG back in sort of 2016-2017 I thought this is it finally I can get things done and was told that I had no budget and <laughs> if I wanted to spend any more than £10 I'd have to submit a form and it would have to go out to tender and, and, and instantly you know the kind of the graphite rods went right into the kind of engine and um, it, it, it just slowed everything down again very very frustrating um, mm. and I had to take some time out of practice because Actually, alongside of that, but the thing that I was very passionate about, um, I was also working in a practice that was struggling, and so I ended up burnt out. I had mm. to take five months off with quite severe symptoms of depression and anxiety, um, which was a, a lesson in and of itself. Mm. And then when I came back into practice, I realized, A, I didn't want to be in that kind of horrible position again. B, life is short, and you start pursuing the things that you want to do. And, and C, actually, a lot of the work that I'd done in trying to make connections with digital health um, within the CCG, but also here in Scotland with the DHI and just the startup scene in and around about uh, England um, started to, to pay off in the sense that I got approached by Babylon, who at that point were looking for uh, a doctor who had an affinity for this um, sort of innovative streak, but also some experience and practical experience of being on the front line, uh, but also to help take the next generation of doctors, the Clinical AI Fellows Program, uh, and lead that. And you know, it felt like kind of serendipity, but I'd, I'd probably been putting a lot of work in before that and was very, very fortunate. They approached me, um, managed to keep my cool long enough for them to accept me. Mm. Uh, and I've been there for about a year now. I'm loving it. Brilliant. Yeah. And um, what's your main role there then? Sure. So when I joined Babylon a year ago, it was about a quarter of the size that it is now. So it's grown extremely quickly. Um, even at the time when I joined, it was uh, described as a startup, and it was a startup, but it was a big and pretty successful startup. So moving from that that first phase to a scale up phase, where it's you're making the transition from being very sort of like nimble and changing and responding in something slightly more corporate. So when I came in as innovation director, um, the title was there, and I had some roles which were to help form up the Clinical AI Fellows Program, uh, help mentor some of the junior doctors that come in. Uh, but once I was in there, I realized that actually some of my previous experience of working in clinical governance was going to be helpful to help sort of uh, improve the, the framework for clinical governance and safety and regulation that they had within the organization. Um, but also I started to get very, very interested in the, the idea of product and, and, and product management, um, which essentially is working with data scientists and engineers and epidemiologists on the products that we do. And I have to say that's been really, really interesting and really fun because it's, it's, very, it's very specific. You have, you, know, you have this product that, in this case, it's like a chatbot that can deliver certain mm. services. So you can 
put it in any particular direction, but you've got a product that needs to do something. And that focus has been really, really helpful. So that's the, the place that I'm in right now, mostly. Mm. And I'm presuming clinical safety must be a pretty vital part. Yeah, of that. absolutely. It's, a, it, it's an interesting area because, um, for a start, the, I'd, as I mentioned earlier on, when I was trying to find tech jobs in the NHS, they'd often say, well, if you do a bit of this, we'll let you do, play with the technology at the same time. So, uh, so I ended up working in clinical governance an awful lot and, and ended up as a clinical safety officer through NHS Digital. I, I'm wondering whether there's maybe equivalent roles here in Scotland as well, but mm-hmm. involved in uh, the NHS Digital Standards you know, 0129 and 0160 about developing and deploying technology and assuring its safety, making sure there's a risk management structure in place. And so I've worked in clinical governance hmm. in out-of-hours care. I've worked in uh, not only building products in the out-of-hours, because we, out-of-hours service, we had our own clinical system, uh, and then deploying it. So hmm. I've done all of this and then came into to Babylon at the point at which some of their products went from being wellness products, which hmm. had a much more light touch in terms of how they were regulated, through to actual medical devices. And so... W- we had that situation um, of a kind of maturing product uh, that was being used in a way that you need to be much more, you need to be much more evidence about how you had tested it, uh, how you handled any feedback, how you improved the product. So there was that side of things. But the thing that I was really proud of doing, and I'm still involved in, is the formation of clinical artificial intelligence governance, which is because when you work in this area, because it's so fast moving, you can't really go to other people who've done this before. So you have to sort of work from first principles. And it seems that clinical governance, with its seven pillars to assure quality and safety, was actually a relatively good framework to approach clinical artificial intelligence. So what that means is that we use the, the seven pillars, which include things like clinical effectiveness, clinical audit, information governance, openness, I'm sort of testing myself on all this uh, research and development, and I've missed a couple of other ones in there as well, but you have all these different areas. Um, and then we identified what, what components are already in place, and where those components weren't available out there, we set about building them based on what we think would be best practice on first principles. And we've had that in place for several months now, and it appears to be working quite well. And it's nice, it's nice to sort of talk about setting that up, because um, as a doctor you're used to working in an extremely risk-controlled way, even as a GP, you know, risk management and so on. And then you come into a tech company, which is maybe doesn't deal with risk in exactly the same way. Mm. And finding the, the happy medium has been challenging at times, but I, I'm, I'm actually quite proud and confident of what we've done so far. And it's nice to be able to sort of talk a little bit more about that, because it's not the sort of thing that, um, that people talk about an awful lot. There's a lot of, I suppose concerned about maybe security mm. of data and I, I don't know if you want to talk a bit about that mm. about how you handle yeah you just you just reminded me of one of the pillars information <laughs> governance um yes so um so there are lots and lots of international and national standards that we have to adhere to mm. so of course we have gdpr um we adhere to uh not only that but Colicott principles about sharing data uh, and other iso standards um we there, there's there's a lot of work done in security and data governance that I'm not directly involved in day to day by other colleagues in the company. Um, you know, even down to because when you think about it, it's a company that deals with you know uh, iOS applications, Android applications, browser applications, 
has its own network, has its own connections to clinical systems. In our case, it's our own clinical portal that we've developed. Okay. Uh, it's interaction with GP systems underneath as well. Every single part of which we have to consider the, the safety and security. Yeah. Uh, and now, as we as we grow internationally, there's the issue about well, different countries have different standards as mm. well, and then let alone moving data or patient identifiable yeah. data from place to place. Um, yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot to consider. Mm. Um, so it's been a real education as well. I mean, what's quite nice is that working in the United Kingdom or being based in the UK, we actually have really quite high standards anyway. So, you know, if you adhere to that standard, um, then adapting it to work in other countries is, is, is that a bit easier. How do messages between practitioners work with, with Babel? Um, so, uh, are you meaning here if uh, one of the clinicians wants to speak to another clinician? Well, lots of levels. I mean, I suppose yeah. you could be referring somebody on, you could be communicating oh, with other right, people, okay. you could be communicating with other GPs as mm-hmm. well. So, yeah, I just wondered. Yeah, well, part, I mean, a lot of those would be very, very familiar to any GP working already. I mean, we, we have an underpinning clinical system, so we use in our NHS GP practice, GP at hand, we use System 1. So mm-hmm. people will be very familiar with System 1, and our clinical portal sits in addition, you know, on top of that. So there's an element of... Uh, data interchange between our clinical portal and system one Mm. Uh, and anyone who's worked in the world of developing uh, interfaces between uh, GP systems and other GP systems or non-GP systems will be aware of the exquisite pain and difficulty of doing that despite the fact it's meant to be quite easy Mm. Um, but within that there's obviously the security considerations are built into that as well Um, and then once it's within the GP clinical system if there's communications and referrals made thereafter then it's um, it's using the same mechanisms right okay and do you see Babylon developing in Scotland I would love Babylon to be available up in Scotland I mean I'd love Babylon's services to be available for the providers of healthcare services wherever whether that's Babylon actually providing the services let's you know would Babylon want to open up a GP practice up in Scotland? I don't know. I don't really get involved in that mm. side of things. But I think there are parts of our technology and services that will be very helpful for GP practices in Scotland and Wales or wherever um, to use. So for the purposes of doing video consultations, um, I do believe there is a, 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 a... I don't know enough about what's happening in Scotland right now, but I believe there's maybe a nationally procured solution that's... Yeah, yeah there's yeah. a new application. It was called Attend Anywhere, yeah. and it's now been rebranded as Near Me. All right. But, I mean, that's um, been mm. pretty massively promoted, you know, mm. across the NHS in Scotland, and the Scottish government see it as a big way of delivering on their digital strategy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, obviously, video co- consultations are very convenient for patients, yeah. so there's a push from them, but <laughs> they require a change of working for GPs. Yeah. and change of mindset Mm -hmm. and actually one of the questions I've been asked personally is what makes a video consultation better than a telephone call Mm -hmm. you know what does it add yeah so I'd be interested in what you you think of that I think um working at Babylon you end up very very attuned to the the user so as a doctor I think well the patient but it's actually good it might not be the patient it might be the doctor or whoever's paying for the services but what's really interesting about that is that um a patient who wants to use a video consultation wants to use it not because it's easier for the doctor. It's because it's easier or it suits what they want. Mm-hmm. And so when a doctor says, you know, how is it better than that? Well, it's not mm-hmm. often. You know, a video consultation, a lot of the things you can achieve in a video consultation, you may be able to achieve in a telephone consultation. You can certainly achieve face-to-face. 
video consultations definitely offer something in addition to telephone consultations. But come back to the fact that video consultation is simply put the preferred means by which certain populations like to converse. If we offered uh, Snapchat or Instagram consultations, regardless of the fact there'd be all sorts of issues with regards to that, mm -hmm. they would be snapped up. Because it is the preferred means of mm. communication mm. for certain groups. Not all groups, but some groups. Video consultations and the use of video is, is maybe slightly more popular just now. Mm. There was a very interesting study done in, uh, and it won't surprise you at all to hear about it being in the west coast of the United States, where there's a group of millennials, or when they, 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 they did a survey, actually considered it strange to speak to a doctor face-to-face. -face. Mm. They would rather not see a physical doctor. They would rather do this by message or video yeah. chat. And that might fill doctors with horror, make you feel a little bit weird right enough. But this is what they want. Um, yeah. And so we have to listen to that. And, and, and people that. with mental health issues quite often yes. would prefer not to have to make the effort to come yeah. out. Yeah. Um, so one of the uses that's being pushed is actually for mental health nurses and, yeah. and potentially GPs you know, maybe to review people. And I can yeah. see that being really useful, actually. Absolutely. When you think about it, I mean, even from my own experience of having anxiety, even as mild as it was compared to some of the, mm. the terrors that other people have, just just sitting in a waiting room and being seen mm -hmm. on time, right? Mm -hmm. If this happens, it's still terrifying. And so, and then I think about being in a busy walk-in centre when I was working and some of my patients who were terribly anxious or withdrawing or whatever it was, you know, and versus being able... I mean, coming in and then having a conversation and and... and we may be able to get an extra amount. There may be that sort of small amount of extra information from the bandwidth of being face-to-face -face with mm. each other. But for the patient and for the purpose of the consultation, that was very small benefit compared to the incredible benefit that might be of a person to feel comfortable in their own home. So I think that video consultations absolutely have their place in the same way that mm. actually the impact of being able to take messages from patients email. probably yeah. yeah yeah email or, or a secure system whichever one you want to do um when you look at the work of uh, there's a company called ask my gp based mm -hmm. i mean i don't know if they're doing anything up in scotland but they have a kind of online services add-on for practices and the most pop one of the most popular aspects they deliver within that's not video but they don't be much yeah. video it's messaging yeah the yeah. Z consult, you know, and the mm. using yes, the website yes, yeah. and all that. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, that takes you onto the kind of the, I suppose, the algorithms and the yeah. sort of like you're looking at trying to develop AI, mm -hmm. you know, for the future, yeah. which is a, an amazing thought. Yeah. Um, I'd be interested how that, how sure. long will that take to develop, do you think? Oh, it's going to take it. It's like, well, it depends. It depends if you think there's a, there's a specific destination at which point it will have succeeded. Mm. And it, my take on clinical artificial intelligence isn't like that. I see. I've learned a lot about AI even before I went to battle. I've certainly learned a lot about it since. So when people talk about artificial intelligence replacing doctors, mm. it seems like a very odd thing after you spent time working in AI because AI yeah. is, is simply automating sort of cognitive processes instead of physical processes. Mm. So in the same way that the screwdriver didn't replace the, the builder, you know, because you could say, well, a person couldn't use a screwdriver themselves. Well, yeah, no, but builders use them and use them very, very well. What we've done is we've building AI tools that automate and allow you to scale and deliver remotely certain services that previously would have required a person face-to-face. -face. And so a very simple example of that might be 
the, 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 the process of triaging a person based on their symptoms. So a person will report certain symptoms and on the back of that you will try and determine uh, who they should see next and in what time scale. So mm. something that humans do very well if you're a doctor, you know, you're doing it all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a lot of things that you've learned along the way. And then, so then if you think back to the start of co-ops, you'd have the kind of receptionist at the front who sort of spent a lot of time observing doctors. So this is what AIs do as well. You know, they observe practice and they learn from this as well. Um, and then you, but people were a little bit worried about that. So then you had sort of like flow charts, simple flow charts, and then algorithms, and then, um, and, and that's maybe where we are right now with NHS 24 in mm -hmm. Scotland and NHS 111. Well, Babylon Power is part of one area of that, um, which are more complex flowcharts, essentially. Now, flowcharts could be argued to be one form of artificial intelligence. It's a way of automating or structuring cognitive processes. Mm -hmm. The next step on from that, and one of the processes that we use, is uh, using Bayesian inference and what's called a probabilistic graphical model, uh, which establishes the relationship between diseases and symptoms and risk factors and the weights associating mm. them. And then when a person reports the symptoms that they have using a different form of AI to get that information, mm. um, you can then say, well, on the balance of what you've said, you may have X, Y, or Z, mm. and we know that the consequence of X, Y, or Z could be this. Therefore, the best thing for you to do at this point, bearing all this in mind, and with human kind of rules on top of it saying, simply put a person reports crushing central chest pain, they need to be seen in the hospital kind of thing. Yeah. Combination of those things then yeah. helps automate uh, and improve the quality and availability of, of that process. So it's kind of like sophisticated pattern recognition, which yeah. GPs do, yeah. but obviously not uh, <laughs> imperfectly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I mean, and, and, but then if you think about, if any of the listeners or you think about it, you know, like, I've been a variable triage mm. deliverer myself, mm -hmm. depending on how awake I've been. I spent a lot of time working out of hours, you know. I'm sure I made weird triage decisions in the 20 minutes before the end of the shift. Mm. You know, I wouldn't have made the same decisions then as I did at the start of the shift, yet a person could objectively project the same thing. Uh, whether I was hungry, angry, yeah. uh, whether I'd been burnt by something before, all uh, whether I had cognitive been, biases kicking All those in. things, you know. Whether I had to do something immediately afterwards or not. What's nice about, like, at their best, humans can be amazing. At their worst, they can be terrible. There's quite a lot of variation in there as well. What's nice with working with AI in one area like triage is that you can measure its performance. When you test it, you can improve it. When you improve it, it stays improved, hmm. and it is invariable. It will always perform that way to as many people as need it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it won't get it won't get grumpy if it's hungry. You know, it, it does this, and that's that's the the real promise of that, which then frees up the doctors to do the things that they are best at, which is the the, the human communication mm -hmm. and the you know the the all the soft science and and everything else. So the the robot will hopefully not replace the the, the GP, but augment the GP. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I suppose in the in in, when I think about it in the distant future, you may get to a point where assembling all these different components might deliver a certain amount of the role that a person might want of a doctor to allow a doctor to be replaced in certain circumstances. And I could never say that it would never happen, mm. but it's certainly an awful long way off. And yeah. I think that humans will still want to have human contact, although I don't know, unless you get the West Coast of States. They feel a little bit different there. I mean, the other example I use is about accountants and calculators. You know, um, no one 
no one thought the calculator was the end of the accountant. It was the change of some jobs, but it wasn't the end of that. And now, how would you feel if you went to an accountant and they said, you know what, I'm a brilliant accountant, and the, the thing that makes me brilliant is that I don't use calculators. I don't use spreadsheets. Mm. I do it all longhand on a piece of paper. And if you, if you went to an accountant right now and they said that, you'd think, yeah. that's quite bold stuff. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. We're at a point now where you go to a doctor and say, you know what, I don't use any decision support for prescribing. I just use uh, the BNF. And I have a note of everyone's drugs. And I work it all out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You think? Yeah, I'm not going on. to you. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, so, so there. Are, so, what we have to do is try and I work out what AI is good for, and you and work on those tools, evidence that they're effective, make sure that they're safe and scalable and available, sort of equitably and ethically, and then make them available to doctors to use them. Yeah. Yeah. Just wanted to get a little bit of um, insight into the use of VR yes, of um, in healthcare, particularly general practice. Mm-hmm. I, I saw on your uh, podcast, you talked about four or five specific oh, applications. Oh, yeah, yeah, there's sort of five ways of... of yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and you know, one that particularly interested me was this um, idea of simulating, I think it was a trip to the supermarket mm. to try and pick up early signs of dementia. Yeah, yeah. Sounds really interesting. Yes, so for those people who don't know what... So briefly, virtual reality, so... Most people listening to this will know what it is, but for those people that don't, virtual reality is a technology that's been around since for quite a while, but basically since the 90s, uh, where you use a computer display stuck on your head uh, and the computer power simulates what it's like to be in a different place. So you can look around and, and it feels like you're somewhere else and you can interact with it and hear sounds from that area. So it's a virtual reality that you can mm. interact with. Um, the reason it's popular now is that in the 90s, Lots of great ideas. Technology was expensive and not so good. Now, technology is much, much cheaper, much, much better. Mm. So we're able to get a good effect. Um, and uh, so virtual reality can be used in a number of different ways. Again, the clinical evidence for this goes back to the early 90s and specifically to the sort of noughties uh, when a lot of work was done with uh, VR. But for the purposes of simulation and what you're talking about, um, one of the things that you can do is with virtual reality, you can... It's described by some people as the sort of perfect Skinner box, um, Skinner being the reference to the psychologist, um, whereas you can put a person into a very well-controlled environment and extremely accurately measure how they interact with that environment, even down to the point of like where they look, um, which is hard to do in the real world, but in VR is actually relatively straightforward. Um, so when it comes down to the, the, what you're talking about, a company called Vitae VR, based out of Bournemouth, um, and they're working with King's College London, I think, on this. Um, what they did is they used virtual reality to simulate uh, a supermarket. And the game that you play when you put the headset on is that you have a shopping list uh, and you have to go around the supermarket and uh, get these items. And so it's a, it's a fairly simple representation of an everyday task that anyone would do. What's very, very interesting about this approach is that um, when you put a person into virtual reality that's quite intuitive to use and you ask them to do a task, you can measure like literally every aspect of it from like how often they look at the the note, uh, which, where do they go to first? How, you know, do they have an effective route around this supermarket? Do they drop things? You know, what do they look at? All of this data can then be analyzed and quantified and then you can then compare it against others and you can pick up some of the very, very subtle changes that happen early in cognitive decline or when you're monitoring people who have established disease and their response to treatment and so on. That was the theory that they were putting forward and 
I haven't seen the published results as yet, but I have seen papers from people doing similar things mm. to show that it's actually quite effective. So, yeah, it, you can imagine if you have a patient who... They, uh, a lady comes in with her mother and says, you know, she's been forgetting things at home and she's been... Mm. You yeah, know, she's come back with, like, you know, 30 packets of toilet paper or something like this. Um, you're getting a very high-level abstracted summary of information that can be very, very accurately measured in something mm. like VR. Uh, and as a result, you can not only quantify it, but you can verify it and you can monitor it too. Uh, that's just one mm. particular area, mm -hmm. but that's been used in a lot of different places. Yeah, no, that sounds... And, you know, we're just doing our GP COG assessments now. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. When, you think about, that, yeah. when you think about the COG assessment, it's, yeah. it's, like, it's like seven questions, is it? Or that's the six sit, isn't it? The six Drawing sit clocks and things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, which, is, which, is, which is grand, but, you know, um, like for... Uh, if you use another example, like for Parkinson's disease, you know, you can attach a sensor to a person's wrist and you can monitor the pen. And so not only can you measure the exact frequency and velocity and vectors of every single tremor, uh, and you can tie it to what they're doing, specific tasks. You know, um, that's powerful stuff. Yeah. Whether it's the right thing to be using that in general practice or not, particularly with the technology that's maybe, you know, that's been around for a while, still quite new to doctors, um, is one thing. The, the way that I used it in practice wasn't so much for that. I just used it in the simplest way, which was you put a person in VR, they feel less anxious and they feel less pain. A distraction? Yeah, so it starts with that. So um, so my story was that, um, so remember I said earlier on Geek and Gamer, I got my VR headset uh, and I bought it and it was sitting on the side literally and I got it and I was waiting to take it home. And um, I at the practice that I worked in, a walk-in centre, we had like many practices uh, regular dressing changes for patients and uh, uh, we'd have patients come in who'd have to have quite painful dressing changes and the nurses would be mm. sort of holding them down and distracting them and so on and, but there was a lady who came in who had just given birth she was breastfeeding and she had a pyonidal abscess that had been treated and was being packed and because she was breastfeeding she was keen to take no pain relief at all but as we all know like mm. pain relief's not really much help when you're packing a wound mm. and so the nurse said well just send us the GP and the GP will We'll do something. Um, and of, <laughs> of course, I didn't have much to do. But but I was aware of um, how VR technology had been used in the past. And I was at that kind of particular point, I suppose, that GPs get to in their career where you've been around long enough to know um, know your patients and, and, mm -hmm. and the relationship, and they know you. Um, mm -hmm. And you also know the scope of, you know, what's what's appropriate and right to do with a patient with their consent as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and so with this patient, I said, well, I've read about VR being used to distract people from pain, and I've got a VR headset right here. Um, should we give it a go? And, and, and she, to her credit, went, well, yes. And so over the course of the week, we used it on every single day, and, and it transformed, like, absolutely transformed her experience of uh, having this because she was very, very receptive to this. She was very, very significantly distracted by it. Um, where she put a headset on and she was watching um, like circus arts type thing. Um, so she was laughing and giggling. She was distracted. But we know from the study evidence in terms of effect, but also in terms of the theory behind it, that, that patients are not only distracted and emotionally, you know, helped through this, but they physically experience less pain. They, they, they are in less pain. Sounds like dentists could uh, use yeah. that kind of thing. Well, I have actually used my VR headset at the dentist. The only trouble is that um, if, if you've got the headset on and they need to do the top teeth, it gets in the way. But the bottom, they're okay. Yeah. Uh, so, drill through it. <laughs> yeah, they need the, the small ones. So, um, 
so I got very interested in VR, set up VR Doctors, which is a group on Facebook that um, people mm -hmm. are very welcome to join. I, I don't run it, it's not a financial interest mm -hmm. of mine, I just run it to try and find out more and connect people. Um, and uh, and through that met a lot of people and so I've connected to a lot of people in the, the VR health industry, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. doctors and patients. One of the patients that I advised, a lady who lives in Kirkcaldy, uh, no, Kilmarnock, pardon me, K, um, and she won't mind me mentioning her name because she's been very vocal on social media about this, uh, has a connective tissue disorder, which means she's very, very limited in the medication that she can take. She's essentially palliative care because she is unable to take, because of mast cell activation syndrome, unable to take a whole range of different medicines, mm. um, including antibiotics. Um, and uh, needed an operation, uh, is unable to take general anaesthetic, has got very limited use of local anaesthetics. Um, and I was put in touch with her by someone from Samsung, and I advised her how to use VR for pain over WhatsApp mm. with her consent. Uh, and she has used it very successfully. <laughs> if we have a technology that works very, very well, that patients can control, mm. um, it's surely important that we look into it more and try and find a way of delivering Absolutely. it. So, so the bit that I'm involved more in now is trying to, all right, okay, it's easy for one person to you know, go in and go, yeah, I'm going to stick VR on a person. But to scale it, to make it that it's accessible to everyone, is not easy. Mm. Um, and so that's the bit that I'm trying to be involved in now, to work with NHS Digital, NHS England, NHSX, uh, and, and the community in general to try and build common interests and work on the problems. So, so if people are interested in that, they can look at the Facebook page, they can look yeah, at your website. Please, yeah. Your just, website is? Oh, it's uh, www.drgrimes.co.uk. That's D-R-G-R-I-M-E-S.co.uk. Dr. Grimes. Yeah, or I'm on Twitter. If you like Twitter, it's at Keith Grimes. Uh, and um, or VR doctors, or just go to Facebook and type VR doctors, and right. away you go. Brilliant, and um, yeah, we look forward to your workshop tomorrow. Yeah, no um, I think it's to going it. to be videoed and made available to Snug members. Oh, fantastic! Uh, but you know, we look forward to that. And I just yeah. want to thank you very much for the chat. Yeah, no, and, it's uh, no problem. It's great. I, I, I think you're uh, probably ready for your dinner now. So I think we're both ready for our dinner. Just now. <laughs> so thank you very much. Yeah, that's no problem. Thank you. Thanks. So there we are. It'll be really interesting to see how some of these things do develop over the next 10 years. Or maybe give it 20. Keith's workshop on AI is available on video at the Snug website. See www.snughealth.org.uk. If you're a member practice, have a look. If you're not a member, well, why don't you have a chat and consider it? As usual, comments and feedback are welcome via our Facebook and Twitter sites or to Alex DeFranco. Contact details are listed below. Thanks a lot for listening and see you soon for another Snug Podcast. Bye.